Well, thanks, Mum. Welcome to Life, the Universe and Dan. Thanks for inviting me, Maxie. Well, I, firstly, for those who don't know, Mum just spent two and a half hours on the train to come speak to me in my little apartment at Potts Point. Uh, we're currently sitting here a little chilly. I don't know about you. I'm perfect. Sounds good. Okay, well, you've listened to the first episode with, with Huey, so you get a bit of an idea of what we're going to be talking about tonight, but let's, let's just start by talking about what you've been up to lately and how, how it's been uh, building the house on the, in, on the land. What have I been up to lately? Um, mainly focusing on assisting April and Tracy to get through the last few months. Um, and that's been really enjoyable, uh, being part of Tracy's recovery taking her to Ferngully and she loves it so much that it's spectacularly fun with her as she is so gleeful when she's down there. Um, she really resonates with the Ferngully Centre and, um, yeah, she feels its joy. And for those who, who might not know that April and Tracy, April is my, my dear younger sister and Tracy is her partner and um, poor Tracy has gone through a little bit of a health sort of experience lately and, and mum has been dutifully uh, helping out with April and Tracy with some of the care and, and the, the Valley Centre is the, the Valley Centre. The Fern Gully Centre is mum's property uh, about two and a half hours or two hours west of, of Sydney where she's currently building a house. And I asked earlier, how, how is it going building the house? Oh yeah, the house is amazing. Uh, I'm a little overwhelmed by uh, the incredible enthusiasm and hard work of the young builders who are making it happen, but it's very exciting. And you're pretty close. I, I've, I've seen some photos come through. Oh, we, we lock up at this point, but now they're starting to fill details with trellises on the outside and <sighs> getting all the uh, cladding, um, electricians being, it's fun. And I think for those who don't know, Mum, your background is in nursing and caring, but you've been most more recently going through the process of getting your degree in psychotherapy and opening up your own therapy practice. Where, where are you with, with that? It's taking a little while. <laughs> uh, I've had a practice before um, in Parramatta with some interesting characters who came through. Um, so this is slightly different and uh, there's just a few organisational glitches that I'm getting through, but it's coming together. Some bureaucracy with the, with the, the, the process. I yes, absolutely. Imagine. And um, I'm also just waiting for my marriage celebrancy to come through as well, just to add another little... Um, what's the word? Um, a jewel in my basket. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier that the idea would be the Fern Gully Centre. So is that looking at the ceremonies, the psychotherapy, and is there anything else? Maybe some retreats, um, mm. depending on how 
how it all pans out. It's just some ideas. A lot of people have commented on the beauty of Fern Gully and how they'd like to spend some time there and I thought it might be useful to have a sort of mini structure if people decided to come to stay with meditation and some interesting talks and some little processes uh, as well. That's a work in progress as too. Mm-hmm. Always. Mm. And with the meditation, you have your own practice. Well, I'm really, really privileged to have a Buddhist centre just uh, in Katoomba, which I've been attending for the last oh, seven years or so, on and off. Um, I absolutely adore it. Um, and it's it's a gorgeous place. The monks um, practice meditation twice a day and anyone's welcome to come along and join them and... It's been a fantastic scaffold for me for the last five and a half years. Mm. And you've had a bit of experience, or a bit of, I guess, what's the word? You've been working with a sort of more Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist meditation for a while. I I remember as a young (laughs) kid in Woodford, uh, you and Dad meditating in one of the rooms I, I sort of have a vivid memory of, of the two of you sitting quiet and I was utterly bewildered as to what was going on but in reflection now that that was obviously the two of you meditating where, where did where did your sort of meditation come from where did, where did you start oh where did my interest start from? your interest yeah um well it started when I was about 20 um I'm not really sure why but I was drawn to self-transformations and an integral part of their work was um, a 20-minute meditation twice a day Um, and yeah it's it's been quite a a powerful practice to have indulged in over the last 40 years or so Um, and the meditation that Dad and I were doing, or Colin and I were doing, uh, was insight meditation for Vipassana. However, Dad had attended at an ashram in India. And, um, I mean, we were dabbling in all sorts of different spiritual ideas. And, I mean, Buddhism is is fabulous. I'm, I'm not a Buddhist per se, but I do love a couple um, of the teachers, um, Pema and Sharon Salzberg and... Um, Tenzin Pamo, there's there's a there's some great minds out there that are able to capture the essence of the teachings and regurgitate them um, for us Westerners to ponder and to use in our daily experience. Mm. You recently, well, I think we, we've both shared the same experience um, at different times, but in the last few years, you've also attended a sort of a, a centre, a Buddhist centre in India, up in Dharamsala. Just yeah, that, w- that was a Mahayana Buddhist tradition. A Mahayana. Yeah, <coughs> um, Tibetan Buddhist tradition um, teaching. It, it, that was, funnily enough, literally set next to a Vipassana centre as well. Um, but this was mainly teaching with some small amounts of meditation interspersed throughout the day, um, whereas Vipassana is very strictly meditate, 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 which is an incredible experience but it was also good to get some of the teachings uh, from the nuns that that were there in residence 
And and that was a, a silent retreat. Well, mine was. Was yours the same? The silent. Yeah, it was a silent retreat. We had seven minutes a day where we were able to speak. Um, that's always challenging. I love it because it just gives you time to stay where you are and just try and read yourself a bit more closely. Yeah, that Vipassana insight is being able to come back to the object each time and then sort of observe your own behaviour in, in those moments when things are a little swirly in the mind. Totally. Mm. <laughs> and I can imagine over the years that things have been a little swirly. I, I said I probably should have in the beginning made it a little clearer. So Julie is my mum. Um, I, I'm the eldest of four. Um, there is April, Katie and there's also Dan. Um, sadly, Dad passed away about 13 years ago. And I guess if you've listened to the first episode, you know that my dear brother also passed away, um, as Mum mentioned before, about five and a half years ago now. Um, which, well, for us as a family has been been pretty intense, and and you know I've had my own experience with with going through the the process of grief and pain. But I guess, mum, before we go into Dan, you know you've gone through a lot over the years, and we spent a big chunk of time with dad being sick through through our teenage years. But as a as a wife, what, what's it like to, to care for someone over that that sort of decade-long period? Um, well, it, 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 it had its stages. Um, for some obscure reason, when I was about 17, I'd read a book called Love Your Disease and in it I learnt about some of the tricky ways that we develop dependency in relationship and how that can in fact uh, keep a person stuck or, yeah, and it was interesting when Dad started to deteriorate and I had a little bit of an insight as to how not to become totally enmeshed or coiled by his process and try to keep myself separate in that uh, I just wanted to be there for him and also for our kids. It was tricky. There's no doubt about it. Um, as he became more dependent um, – that whole premise became even more important and, and I was lucky enough to be able to continue my painting and running each day so that I could maintain a lightness around his needs and Maxie, April and Danny and Katie's needs. Um, I was also lucky in that my very loving siblings helped us with some cleaning every week and... Um, you yeah. mean they helped us with with uh, with Wendy? She came. Sorry, in. They, pay, they they pay for some cleaning every yeah. week. So, I, f I felt supported and loved by um, a lot of people. Our friends were incredible on holidays and came to our assistance. Dad was an interesting character. He 
he managed the role. Well, he didn't become the role. That was the interesting thing. Um, he kept working and he never once apologised for what we had to do around him, which was it actually meant that we didn't have to feel sorry for him so much as we were working as a, as a family, as a team, to keep him going. Um, and rightly or wrongly, you were all involved. And, you know, there's a lot in hindsight. But when you're in the middle of the mesh, you, you tend to just keep going as you can. Um, he was a very, very interesting man and so his mind kept us all alert and inspired. Um, however, there was there was there were too many things that you guys had to, to see and too many things that you lost um, with him being so unwell. Yeah, it's it's always a challenge when there's someone unwell in in a family family dynamic, especially a family of origin, and when you've got a family like ours, where there was you know, there was six people, it especially when you know it's the father who who gets unwell, and and at th- th- that point, well, I know you worked incredibly hard, both for the family and as a nurse, and then also at the at the school, you were one of the the nurses at the at All Saints for a time. The school we all went to in Bathurst. You know, Dad, what, how did how did Dad keep working? What was it? What was? That? Oh well, I mean, he had stages of deterioration, and Dad always had a brilliant mind, and we were sort of his body, and he never lost that incredible acuity. And even up until the week before he actually died, he was still working. It was just something about his brain that was inspired by um, the focus that he 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 gave to his um, interesting job that he had and that's just how he was um, and I, I I remember saying to my brother once that you know I'm, I'm happy to work with this man to keep him alive because the world needs his brain <laughs> mm. um, yeah When was Dad officially diagnosed? Because I, I sort of don't, in my mind, it's I get a bit confused. But it's funny you should ask that because just the other day I was trying to work out. I could look it up on the internet, but I didn't. The year of nine eleven was when he had the biopsy of his muscle that they absolutely ascertained that he had inclusion body myositis. Prior to that, um, he had weakness, yeah, quite debilitating weakness. However, the symptoms weren't that great. Um, and yeah, so whatever that year was, <laughs> yeah, about when I thought it would be. So early two thousands. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was still at All Saints. We were still living in William Street at the time because yeah. I remember yeah. that very sad, tragic moment at nine eleven. It was on the TV. Kimmy was actually at my the grandmother, yeah. mum's, mum's mum was up visiting us in in our place in Bathurst. Um, but I got to go back for a second. Think, talking about dad and talking about the family because we've lived in a few houses we're not, we're not the, the Crawford Smiths were never one to stay in a place for for very long um, I've, I've sort of stopped counting after 
five or six houses. But we we you know I have fond memories of growing up in the Blue Mountains, so the lower Blue Mountains, just out the, out of Sydney, in a place called Woodford. We lived on a about a quarter of an acre. Is that right? Yeah. Oh no, an acre and a quarter. An acre and a, an acre and a quarter. Oh yeah, I was missing missing a big chunk, uh, which I have fond memories of. But at one point, at some point around, I guess it must have been. Must have been eight, so nineteen ninety five, nineteen ninety six. You and Dad decided to move us out to, to the country, um, and you're grimacing a bit there. So, <laughs> I'm, which is good because I'm leading into the question: What was that about? Why, why, why the move to the country? I loved it, but it's, it's. I'm interested to hear for, from you what, what motivated you and Dad to take us to, the middle of, uh, middle of nowhere on a on a funny farm we call it Daisy Bank. Look, there are a number of reasons. At the time, we were doing a course with quite a well-known woman called um, Gita Bellin, and um, oh, she was living on the property herself. And we went out to have a look at it, and Dad and I both fell in love with it. Um, and we we wanted to have, um, I guess, we wanted to join the community, and oh, we also just saw a great opportunity for our children to be on land and sense a connection for their souls with the earth and and nature. Um, it's a little impractical. It's too far maybe from Lithgow and Bathurst. We did a lot of driving. Lithgow and Bathurst are the, the, the closest sort of major towns. Bathurst is about a population of 40,000. I think Lithgow is about 15,000. And they're sort of two and three hours west of Sydney. Um just for context, the farm was was affectionately called Daisy Bank. It was on about 500 acres and it was a conglomerate of about 12 to 13 properties that were a part of a, of a, of a community that had a, a, a sort of a central trust that owned the property um, and then each of the individual blocks were, were owned by you know, families or, or individuals. Um, they, were, they were an acre and, yeah, there, there was sort of... A, a community as a whole, there were some interesting characters, as you mentioned before. Um, I have nothing but fond memories of, of growing up on the farm. We had dogs and cats and ducks and chickens and I had birds and we got to play in the, in the, in the neighbouring farms and the forests. What was it like, though, for, for, for you and Dad, you know, bringing up four kids on on a big property in the middle of nowhere, sort of 50 minutes from the local town and the local hospitals. and What was that like? I guess we never really thought about it that much. We just did it. Um, I mean, I've always loved being on land and I've always loved walking and getting lots of exercise. So, And I... I well, Dad did too. Um, I guess there were... It was impractical and many levels I was trying to do nursing at Lithgow Hospital and driving back after night shift 45 to 50 minute drive wasn't particularly safe dad was working from home it, there were there were many fun things about it um, yeah I, look, I have lots of different memories and different perceptions about whether it was good or bad oh look always going to in hindsight have 
ideas about how you could have done things differently, as, especially as a mother, you're going to forever <laughs> pulling apart your the way in which you, you raised your kids. But I think from from my perspective, it was it was an incredible experience, uh, both being on the land, being in nature, being surrounded by animals, being surrounded by all those interesting characters. You know, it definitely it's definitely impacted me positively. Being being around all those strange at times but, but but fascinating characters that I got to meet um, and also watching the two of you you know raise four kids on a farm and dad's perseverance with his his own business um, you know green power services dad dad's an engineer by trade or dad was an engineer by trade um, but he ran his own his own consulting firm um, providing I guess in simple terms advice to to companies on how to improve their their environmental and sort of carbon footprint requirements within the business i think that's a very simplified version of it but that let's just leave it at that um you know it's in the night it's in the mid 90s and dial-up is still a thing so we've <laughs> i have <laughs> memories of trying to use the internet on speeds that would make modern technology laughable you know, working in Lithgow and, and Dad running a business and having kids, you guys must have a, had a pretty deep sense of adventure. Where, where does did is that something that drew you together in the beginning? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, we we'd actually met through the Wilderness Society, um, you know, saving the Franklin. Um, I was nursing at the time, and um, the Franklin the River. Franklin River. Um, and in we Tasmania. In Tasmania, which yeah. Which was a bit of a, a landmark. A landmark. Uh, you were also arrested, I believe. I was indeed. For, for protesting. Yes. Um, I like to tell the story that you were arrested and then put in prison and wrote letters to all your loved ones on toilet paper because you thought you were you were done for. I never thought I was done for, but it had a little bit of drama, the fact that we had to write on toilet paper to, um, <sighs> to communicate with. Look, it, it, it was very much a token and it was a great experience. Um and I did meet Colin and all my very dear friends that I still hold now. Um, and interestingly enough, one of my best friends, Alison's fiancé, had been, well, he had drowned on the Franklin and that's why we all got involved. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, our lives... Drowned, drowned in a kayaking accident. Yeah, on the Franklin River. And, and our lives just, ev- well, they just evolved from I guess that process I would never have met dad Colin if Mark hadn't died possibly maybe I wouldn't have got so involved in the campaign and um, then we as a group of people set up a community prior to Daisy Bank on the Colo while we attempted to anyway we bought land together and um, we had all sorts of aspirations at the time at least we're still friends now, which is pretty <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> yes, trying to start a community with friends on a property sounds sounds idealistic, but I imagine there's uh, a lot of pitfalls. They were just like just normal examples of mini human conflicts, I guess. <laughs> and so the Wilderness Society, that, that still exists t- today. Was it? The love of the environment, or is it about activism? What what drew you towards the the wilderness society specifically? Because I know Dad did some work for Greenpeace as well, um, at time at, at a, for a time. 
I think it was just uh, being part of uh, something that had a richer and deeper meaning. Um, and I, of course, I'd always loved being on the land with our grand. My grandparents had um, properties um, around New South Wales, and we spent many holidays with them. And I guess I always felt very connected to being outside and um, working with my grandparents on on the properties. In fact, it was, yeah, there were many idyllic holidays um, that we spent with them and I guess that nurtured something inside. Um, Yeah, I was was privileged to have had that childhood. And... Are you referring to the property out at is it Galaganbone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't actually know exactly where. where, where oh, is it's Galagenbone? it's been it's near Dubbo, just out that way. Anyway. So for anyone listening, Dubbo is about six, maybe seven hours west of Sydney, over the Blue Mountains, and then to the the flat country of Central West New South Wales. Um, Mum's nodding, so we'll we'll take that as a <laughs> we're, we're somewhere in the in the vicinity of the area. Um, so that's the activism. That's the that's where you and Dad met. So from there, well, actually, I want to go back to the with the Franklin because I think that's a really exciting, a really amazing part. That so, what was it like to be to be a part of that movement? Because it's it's one of it's it's one of you know Patagonia, the, the the clothing brand, has it all over their shop in Melbourne. It's it's quite a significant uh, event in 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 our history, in a family history, but also in Australia's history. It was stopped the damming of one of what is now, you know, world, I think it's, a, it's if in a, a UNESCO site, so it's a World Heritage Site, um, and, and one of the eight, it's, it's quite an incredible area. What, what was it like being a part of such a, a huge movement? I guess, yeah, I, I guess we didn't really think about it that much. I mean, we were young and enthusiastic, and there was a lot of energy um, behind the campaign. Bob Brown was very inspiring, Um I, I guess it, it 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 just felt right to do it. Um, it's funny. I, I really didn't give it a lot of thought. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's. And it was uh, exciting. Of course, it was exciting. And that's, as I said, the people that I met through the campaign. We then decided that we were going to try and create a community that would oh, look at just the way the world worked and see if we could do something slightly different. Um, I love that. Love that idea. How how old were you when when this all happened? So the Franklin River. How old I turned twenty one um, when I met my team, if you like, um, and. Then I went to India to work after Franklin. I went to India to work and then came back and sort of was part of their community. Um, yeah. And in India, from memory, you spent six months in India? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what were you doing over there? <laughs> well, when I was 14, uh, a beautiful nun came and gave us a talk at our school um, about an organisation that she'd set up in a village outside of Calcutta 
And I had one of those sort of holy moments, if you like, being at a Catholic school where I think God said, mm-hmm. you need to become a nurse so you can work in her institute. And I did that. Um, I think it was such a moment of excitement and inspiration. I can still remember where I was sitting at the school when that happened. And so when I finished my nursing, um, after the Franklin and uh, that story, I contacted them and I went to Calcutta with one of my friends. She decided to come along too and then we were sent out to a village um, to work in the Child and Need Institute and look, that was ridiculously eye-opening and extraordinary for two middle-class privileged white women uh, to experience. Um, And I I still right now can't really connect or understand how this whole world works, but the poverty and the life was just so unbelievably different to anything I'd experienced, as you can imagine. But we did look after little babies who had Kwashiorsko and other nutritional deficiencies um, and it was amazing um, and all sorts of other issues came up as a result of it it was well before organized volunteering um, was a thing so I had sort of taken off by myself to do that um, with my friend Ali and so we really didn't have a lot of supervision or guidance um, we just sort of threw ourselves into this hospital and um, having both completed our nursing training, you would think that we had some idea of what we were doing, but it was a very different world to what we'd been exposed to. Um, well, if you look at the, the contrast, um, you know, I, knowing where you grew up in the leafy suburbs of the Upper North Shore and uh, Pimble and going to, to a Catholic school in the North Shore, how... How stark was the contrast for you when you when you arrived in India? And, and how old do you say you are? I was twenty two. Uh, look, I couldn't look. It was such a culture shock. Um, I couldn't move out of uh, the rooms that I was staying in for about three days. I just didn't know how to fathom the extraordinary difference um, of existence. And uh, I mean, look. As I said, still to this day, it's hard to sort of reconcile the ridiculous contrast of my experience and theirs. And of course, there was, you know, plenty of wealth within Calcutta as well. There was a middle class, but there was also an extreme, extreme level of poverty. Families just living in cardboard on the streets and washing in the faucets of water that sort of were pumped out in the the middle of the road. Men were still not on cycle rickshaws but pulling rickshaws on foot. Um, That sort of transport had been outlawed in other parts of India but for some reason Calcutta um, was still using men to pull fat white wallers and Indian wallers through the streets um, in unbelievable heat with plastic shoes on. I, I don't know why that happens and I remember just feeling so confused about even hopping into one of these rickshaws but the the irony or sorry the um the the situation we were faced with was if we didn't 
use their employment, then they weren't getting paid. But if we did use their employment, we felt like we were contributing to their physical demise. So, yeah, that was that was confronting. Um, and look, babies died in the hospital. Mm. Um, and I remember trying to resuscitate a baby. And I, yeah, as I said, there was no supervision and possibly maybe we shouldn't have been there. I'm not sure, but we were and tried to open our hearts to the situation. And, yeah. How, how did you come about getting to to the hospital like i understand you know you catch a plane to india and what would oh we just caught a bus out to the village and do you just turn up to the hospital well we did just turn up to the institute um and the nuns had obviously telephoned through to say we were coming so you had organized something with the nuns in oh, australia I, I, i'd rung i'd rung well i think i'd written in those days you didn't have computers no i'd written to sister pauline and asked so you her handwritten a note yeah i'd written to her to ask if i could be part of um this is but just just quickly just to, to give some context it's 2023 mum you're 61 at the moment at so the moment yes yeah, at the moment currently in this in this moment you're 61 so you're 21 22 so that's 40 40 years ago so we're we're looking at 19 1983 is that about right 84 actually 84 1984 so yeah we're we're pre-internet we're we're pre-mobile phone uh we're probably even pre many phones in houses definitely definitely in india well funnily enough just on that point my sister annie was turning 21 and uh i had to catch the bus into calcutta i had to stand for three hours waiting to make a phone call and then the road was flooded so I had to um, stay in some strange accommodation that night because I couldn't get back to the village um, yeah so just to make a phone call and I'm not even I did I'm pretty sure I spoke to her but it when you think about that that was pretty amazing I didn't even have any money or anything that night I think I went to some hostel and then I caught the bus back. I couldn't even ring my friend to say that I was okay or, yeah, I mean, you just do things depending on how. Oh, I don't think you just do things. I think that we travel very differently these days. I'm reflecting on my own travel and I've been fortunate enough to do a lot. But you're 20, 22 in India and as a woman. I, it's very, I don't know what it's like to travel. As I've been to India myself but not until 2020. So I imagine it's changed a lot since then and I'm also 6 foot and 90 kilos so... I'm not intimidated by by sort of the, the vastness and the intensity of India, but what was it like being being a single twenty two year old white woman in 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 India coming from from Sydney and a Catholic school by yourself? Well, I think um, the most important thing that I'd sort of worked out before I left was to wear um, very modest clothing, so you know, long top and long pants, so that you were completely covered. I never felt fear. I don't know why. I think I have been blessed um, with love. I don't know. And that night that I had nowhere to go, I just somehow managed to wend my way to a hostel in Calcutta. In Calcutta. Otherwise, I, yeah, I had no way of ringing anyone to let them know or to find a place to stay and... 
I didn't even question it. I, I just remember thinking I had to do something. I had, to, yeah, I had to, I had to survive this. So I can remember a young woman that I that I stayed in her room, but I can't remember much else. And I'm not even sure how I paid for it. I think she might have lent me the money, and look, it was such a minimal amount of money in terms of Australian dollars. It was fine, but very bizarre. Um, how did you get money back in, in the eighties in India? Uh, we had travellers' checks, travellers' checks, and you went into Calcutta, a bank in Calcutta, and uh, what's the word? Gave them the travellers' checks, and they handed you the the cash. And then you had to have, uh, I imagine, a, not a small amount of money to carry around. Yeah, yeah. Person. Lots of rupees. Lots of rupees. Were, were uh, look, I loved India. I, I loved its insanity. In the end, it's incredible. What struck me so strongly in those days, in 1984, was the capacity for people to continue living under the most extraordinary conditions and still have a zeal and a passion for their day. Um, that to me still still holds uh, that despite their struggle, their fire for life was very strong. I mean... Clearly there would have been people that found it too hard and but generally the energy was very high and people did anything to eke out a living. You know, you'd be on a bus and it would break down in the middle of nowhere. Well, within minutes somebody was off the bus with their little funny aluminium pot, some tea and some sugar, making a little oven out of mud lighting it with some cow dung and making us chi, uh, tea, chai, we, uh, chini chai, yeah, sugar tea. Yeah, um, very industrious. Well, just uh, loads of initiative as well. Yeah. And they, they didn't sort of get caught in the, the little minutiae details that we might get caught well, here at Well, no, no work health and safety, <laughs> uh, no concern about germs, God knows where the water came from, but when you're in the middle of nowhere, chini chai is um, very, very tempting and satisfying how uh speaking of hygiene how how often did you did you get sick over there oh we got a bit too sick uh, i mean i i got very ill but you know not 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 life-threatening but it can be life-threatening <sighs> oh it can be if you don't drink and i'd learned as a nurse there about oral rehydration therapy which is one of the treatments that we gave the children and the babies um and so I spent many hours making drinks for Westerners who had no idea how to look after themselves when they got sick. Um, and we took antibiotics and things too uh, that we bought from dispensaries, local dispensaries. Okay, so so, so uh, you've, you've, you're in Calcutta, you're working in the hospitals. Uh, did you do any travel outside of the hospitals or were you just Oh, well, I went walking in the Himalayas and um, with – some guys, and then I went to Nepal and did some incredible walks there as well. Uh, and by incredible walks, do you mean Annapurna Circuit? Annapurna Circuit, which and um, yeah, which we've subsequently done as a family. Yeah, I've done it myself with with. Oh, you have too. With yeah, your, with my cousin Ben, which is Annie's eldest son. Um, I did that in two thousand and nine. Would have been a little different to nineteen eighty four, um, but the mountains would still be the same. <laughs> <laughs> Resplendent with diamond snow, they are exquisite, yes. They, they were definitely exquisite. I, we walked 
Ben and I walked from, we did an anti-clockwise trip from Besi Sahar up through John Manang and over Yakaka and into Thorang Feri and over the pass, um, Thorang La, which I think is 5,416 metres, if my memory serves me correct, down into Johnson. Um, my ankle was playing up. I had very swollen ankle at the time so we actually flew from Johnson which is an experience in itself um, flying out of 2,800 metres in a plane full of India you know, sorry Nepalese lovely Nepalese people um, quite a few chickens and uh, a spare wheel um, which was terrifying and, and beautiful taking off in the middle of the, the I guess well they're not actually the Himalayas it's the Annapurnas but they're, they're equally as they're actually eight eight mountains affectionately named Annapurna one through to eight and they're over 8,000 metres high all of them um, but what was it like walking around Annapurna in, in the 80s? Oh it was utterly beautiful uh, we were still staying um, in like literally in people's houses and we'd we were privileged enough to sort of share literally share their meal that they were making they weren't they weren't quite set up for um, tourists on one side. Just can't um, wasn't. Just can't quite remember the names of the towns, but um, no, it, it's it's on the, the from the Johnson South down to Pokhara. Yeah, it's 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 the sort of more unknown part. I, I myself don't don't remember. I didn't walk through there, but it's it's very remote. Um, it's much more scree slope. The other side is uh, the lower sides are more rainforesty. Oh, it was still absolutely stunning. And um, did you do the full circuit? Yes, we did. The, we did the full circuit. So we started at Pokhara and finished at Dumrey. Oh wow! Um, you, you you walked. Yeah. That's a few hundred kilometers. Yeah, it was breathtaking. And you know, we we stayed in little tiny huts. And um, I found a Buddhist monastery and went to find monks chanting. Um, and I guess that was sort of my first sense that. I had a yearning that I couldn't really explain from my mm. my background um, going to a Catholic school and I did find that oh, extraordinary sitting there. I can still hear them chanting and, um, yeah, something interesting was happening there. Um, yeah, it's pretty amazing when you, when you come across something like that with yeah. the, when, you, when you're in the mountains and you hear... The, 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 the guttural chants of, of monks and nuns, mainly monks probably back then. It was it, – that particular monastery was um, was monks. That was up from Manang um, and I can I – can, I still have the memory of, as you say, the chanting is very guttural and it's sort of like it created a vibration of, through your body. It's, yeah, quite quite amazing. I'm, I imagine too that – they called it the tea house trek. Um, the Annapurna circuit is the tea house trek, and so I guess over the the, the twenty years between, or a bit longer, thirty years, forty between, years. Well, when I went there, it was oh, sorry, yeah, fifteen years ago. But I imagine it changed a lot in those in that twenty five years. But what I, I do remember though, it was still it was still pretty untouched when we went in. Once we got above Manang, there was a, sadly, well, not I, I shouldn't say sadly. Everyone needs to have an opportunity but it, it was it was very different in the four years or three years that I went the first time and then came the second time with you and Dan and Katie in April so the f- 
um, the, the five of us went sort of after after we lost dad. How different was it for you going the second time? Well, I mean, you say sadly and it's the truth of the matter is it was pretty essential to put a road in so that yeah, for the locals it is. I'm saying yeah, sadly. Yeah, yeah sad I mean, for, the, for us, because we loved the, yeah, the sort of the quaintness of the tracks through the forest right. and... Um, yeah, the privileged Westerners coming to yeah. walk, but the, the, the bloody Lebanese, Nepalese are trying to make a living and we just want to walk. So, yeah, it's a, it's a privileged statement to say, sadly, but... Well, also, I mean, in terms of medical emergencies and I guess you can imagine um, being in childbirth way up in the mountains and there is an emergency, well then... I can't imagine. Yeah, you, you'd have to rely on... I mean, there could be highly skilled um, practitioners there, but if there wasn't, um, it leaves people very vulnerable. Yeah, so it, uh, yeah, it would have it changed a lot for you then. For sure, yeah, it did. Um, I'm just sort of trying to remember the trek that we did um, and then the trek that I did. Yeah, I sort of looked wistfully across it where you could see evidence of the old track at times. Yeah. Um, but the backdrop of the Annapurnas is still magnificent and that was a wonderful trip that we did as a family. But just before we sort of move on to I have a few other questions about about your life, but while we're here, we're at Annapurna, 2012, it's a year after dear old dad's departed this, this wonderful planet. What, what, was, <laughs> what was the... The driving force behind taking us, and whole well, we weren't taking us. We were older by that point, but we all went in. We all went to Nepal as a bit of our first family holiday. Is just the five of us. What do you remember? Why Nepal was the destination? Were we all sort of nostalgically trying to sort of get back to Dad's roots or your uh, roots? I think I just wanted you to have a really full-on adventure with yeah. as a family. I mean, you guys had all sought your own adventures, but I felt like it. It would be. Yeah, good question. Um, an amazing trek for us to do, create new memories. Um, and at, I remember one place where we were stopping to drink lots of sugary tea, looking up at the mountains and just having a moment where I sort of imagined that Cole was just in a cave or in a tent on a long retreat and uh, that's what he chose to do. And I remember thinking, oh, well, that's where he is and we're here um, and so his energy and presence was still uh, around us. I mean, I had had an interesting moment which I'm – it's maybe okay to share but I wasn't sure about whether I should take you all or whether we should, we should go as a family and so I shouted at him one morning, I'd been on night shift and said, you've got four hours to answer whether I should take <laughs> Um, Maxie and Danny and Katie and April across to Nepal and lo and behold the picture that he'd taken of Machu Puchari, which is one of the big mountains yeah. in Nepal fell off the wall onto the floor and so I took that as being a bit of a message that Colin thought it would be a good idea for us all so, to go there. So you interpreted the painting falling off because you could have taken it the other way and the, the wind and the, the photo being smashed as an an indication that you shouldn't be going, but I admire your your fortitude and, and yeah, sense of adventure to, to take that as a sign that we should go. So uh, proof in the pudding, Mag. We're all home. <laughs> <laughs> We're all back. We're all back. No, it was. I uh, look. I I loved it. It been there the second time. I think 
the only thing that I, I laugh at is that we went in the, the dead of winter. Um, I think we went just after New Year's Eve or... Christmas Day we Christmas, left. Oh, we did leave Christmas Day. Mm. So we had New Year's Eve over there. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know what Nepal's like, up at 3,500 metres in a little rock hut um, when it's minus 20 outside it's um, and there's no no heating uh, to speak of whatsoever, um, it's... It's pretty chilly. It's definitely experience. I loved it. I thought it was incredible. I was standing on my balcony most nights taking photos of, of the mountains. Um, my sisters didn't experience it quite the same way I did. I don't. I know Katie once said that she. Katie's the youngest of the four. She's seven years younger than me, so she would have been in two thousand and twelve. She's what? How old is she? She's twenty nine now. Twenty twenty nine. So she's probably what? Not even eighteen. Seventeen. Yeah. Seventeen. I think she just swore at all of us the entire time in her head. Um, if she, uh, oh, she did have fun. I've got some lovely photos of her smiling. But as a seventeen-year-old, a young seventeen-year-old woman going around Nepal with your family just after your dad's died, it must have been <laughs> quite quite a trip. And carrying a backpack all the way up. Yeah, we we we, we walked a lot. I think we walked some days twenty kilometers up very steep hills. Do you remember what it was like with with? The four of us, what the different, the different, I guess, interpretations and perspectives that we had. What was that like? Well, I mean, obviously, you and Danny were, were quite comfortable with it. April was great. I mean, I I knew when I took you all that it wouldn't necessarily be a sort of holiday. It would be more like a workshop. <laughs> and um, I did workshop Katie a little bit, but to her credit, she. Oh, you know, faulting her, her tenacity. Yeah, I just she, she rose to the occasion after having a couple of spack attacks and um, me having to carry her pack for a little while and um, not for long. She, look, she loved it after a couple of days and it. I just felt so extraordinary privileged that you all wanted to come with me um, and, um, yeah, there were moments of anxiety around what had I done but it was very beautiful lots of different memories of that trip yeah look it's you've instilled in all of us and especially me a, a deep love of, of adventure and, and mountains are some of my my favorite favorite things i was chatting recently to a friend who's in europe at the moment and they were describing in detail their experience of mountains and it was it's funny to listen to the differences like they they sort of were hating the sweat and the cold and the <laughs> the, really? the, the the trudging up these steep steps and for me it, that's just that's a happy place. Um, I would being, agree with that. Being in the, surrounded by mountains, there's, there's a majesty in in being at that that that, that, that altitude. Sort of, that altitude and, mm. and I, it's sort of hard to to to, to describe. Yeah, I, I I loved that whole trip. I, it was great to be back after three years. Um, don't often get a chance to go to Nepal and to go twice is, is pretty cool. Um. Well, I, I do have this distinct memory of watching um, a Tibetan woman sort of climbing out of her house one day and she was just collecting some sticks from the roof and I just marvelled at the fact that she wandered up to the roof, she collected the sticks and she took a moment and just breathed in the absolute splendor of her environment which I guess if you're looking at the altitude it's so high and so light it yes cold and difficult but still from a 
spiritual perspective, it would be such an incredible experience to be encased in that beauty every day. Yeah, it would be um, hard, hard, hard slog of a life to climb up and down those those roads as a, as a local. But it, such such beauty is it's hard to come by. I, I do remember a funny. A funny moment of the locals laughing at you because you insisted on picking up plastic as we walked between oh, each yeah. of the little towns, which I again I have nothing but admiration for that kind of behaviour. But it was a, a full a fool's errand, considering sadly how much rubbish was just thrown into the the ravines around us. But and we would have been contributing to that too. We were, yeah. Forty years prior, there was no rubbish at all when I was in India. Yeah, um, that's that's an interesting contrast. It's the advent and the technology has really changed India that the plastics yeah weren't really a thing and now everything is wrapped in plastic you, you, you know I imagine the markets in 1984 would have just been big tables of beautiful produce laid out and people buying and selling and now it's just everything is wrapped in plastic when I was there um, in India and, and, and Nepal I guess oh look it's a major issue for yeah. sure as as it is in our country but we just have a very good way of throwing it all into a big waste pit and uh, pretending it's not there. Well, and there's the, the difference is that there's 1.4 billion people in India and there's only 26 million in Australia and we, in, in one way the land size is pretty comparable. Imagine if you had another billion people living on this country, we'd be covered in rubbish. Um, Absolutely. I don't yeah. think – I just think it's a, a factor of overpopulation. Um, okay, so we're – We've jumped to Nepal, we're 2012, but if we go back to go back to where we started, so you're in India, you've done Nepal, you've come back to Australia, you met Dad earlier, you you have me when, I, when you're 25, so there's a few years in between coming back from India and sort of you and Dad having me um, and getting, I think you get, I'm at your wedding, so you get married a year after, a year after... I got married in 1987, about six weeks after you were born. Six weeks after I was born. Yeah. Okay, that, that makes more I sense. I mean, your birth was miraculous experience. <laughs> yeah. It's so, so exciting. I've had the good fortune of, <laughs> I don't know why I use that term, <laughs> I've experienced and something that most people would never experience, which is seeing the photographs of my own birth. Um, <laughs> I, While we're here, for whatever reason, that memory's popped up, what... What possessed you one to well taking photos is kind of a beautiful thing, but why are they in an album that looks like a baby photo album and yet they are your birthing photos? I guess I was just transfixed by the miracle of being able to birth such a beautiful boy, um, and it was it was relatively new. My father actually took them into his chambers at the time and showed all his barrister friends. They would have been rather fascinated by um, the gory details. Um, well, you also showed the, the album to my d- girlfriend at the time when I was about 18. I believe you bought it out at dinner one night and said, look at this. And uh, I don't know if it – well, let, let's – yeah, we'll leave it that one. Um, look, I guess this is – You've gone through a lot of grief and pain over the years with with dad. 
leading up to leading up to the inevitable. I was talking to Huey yesterday or on the weekend, sorry, about Dan and about his his liver dysfunction. I didn't really know much about his liver dysfunction when he was when he was alive. He he didn't talk about these things and I didn't sort of want to press him and nor did I sort of ask you. I, I did tell the story about him seeing the doctor when he was about 14. Uh, are you able to sort of, or can you go there with, right now with, with that experience and what it was, what that was like with Dan as a young teenager? Look, I think um, as with some stories, they can take on a, a sort of legend of their own and it's not entirely accurate that he was told that um, his liver wouldn't last till he was 25. I'm not quite sure how that came about but I remember the liver specialist at the time wasn't particularly encouraging to him um, that could have just been our desperate interpretation in that dad was ill and it was a lot for us to be dealing with. Because um, your these these two things are, are coinciding now. For me, I didn't grasp the gravity of Dan at that point. I was, you know, going through going through high school and. It was already enough to to be sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, looking after dad, you know, carrying him upstairs and pushing wheelchairs and doing all those sort of things. Managing both and a family, you, you know, you've got your middle son and you've got your your husband who's unwell and you're managing a family. How did that play on you? It was it was constant. Um I had enormous energy and enormous strength and I meditated a lot. Well, at least tried to meditate once a day. Um, even even back then you were... Yeah, okay definitely. Um, I loved you guys and I loved Dad. Um, and Is that where you think that strength came from? I, I wanted to show you what love could do. Um, I'm not saying it was perfect. There were many moments that it was it's very okay. intense. Um, but We all survived. Yeah. Uh, I did have a couple of sort of glimpses of wisdom where I sort of came out of a meditation and decided that I could see this whole process as a gift and deal with the situation with grace and... I don't know how those words came in, but they did at the time and it did inspire me uh, to try and create as best a world for us all as I could. I mean, Dad was still earning, so I wasn't responsible for the income except when I was working at the school. And as time went on and he deteriorated, um, it, it, would, it was better that I was at home I, I think I I was determined that he would stay with us um, and I did have physical strength and I remember some days I used to put his feet on top of my feet and keep him walking by walking up the hall. I remember. 
yeah, now rightly or wrongly, you know, I was very encased in caring for him and I tried to give you guys a life as well. You had parties and we did all sorts of things but clearly my sort of obsessions were probably more towards keeping dad going. Um, And, you know, I remember saying at April and Tracy's gathering that April didn't really have a princess teenage time. She was more the strong woman and... Yeah, we all had to grow you, up you all You all were extremely involved in his care, rightly or wrongly as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it was sort of like we were in the boat together and we all did it. Um, and at this point... You went with the diagnosis of, of, of Dan mm. primarily. I oh, it was, look, it. it was terrifying. Can, can you say it for me because I get a ton Primary sclerosing cholangitis. Look, it, it was terrifying and I remember um, my sister's husband, Simon, was very supportive and we talk about the um, pathology of, of Dan's disease and he'd have tests and things and I'd ring Simon and let him know what the enzymes were doing in his liver and I, I don't know how we managed all that. We just did. Colin was in semi-denial about it yeah. and and that's okay because he was struggling with his own illness and he yeah. just decided that nothing was going to happen to Dan, that he was going to be okay. And, I mean, Dan, you were all extraordinary, but he at 14 was sort of at home with Dad and me and, I don't know, he just he just played a role that was very unusual. Yeah, um, he did. And I, I, I'm, I'm a left home by that point. Yeah, so. you guys were, were doing other things which was totally essential and I mean Danny would pack all dad's equipment in the trailer if we went anywhere it would take him two hours and he just did that with like brilliant capacity and um (sighs) so Dan's 14 I'm 19 so I left home at 18 well pretty much 18 19 yeah and then when we went to Europe with you you shouted us to a three-day holiday in Rome and basically pushed along with Danny and April and not Katie so much because she wasn't strong but she was there supporting um, as strong. You pushed Dad around Europe. Um, yeah, we pushed him everywhere. Yeah. I don't think we – I think Dan and my attitude was that there wasn't a set of stairs that would stop us. I think at one point we carried him up 100 stairs in, in Rome up to the top of a hill. We carried him through forests – we just, we just, yeah. There wasn't. I think you instilled in that. I guess that anything's possible. Anything's possible. You guys were strong and very willing and extraordinary, generous with your um, your capacity to to do that for him. I, yeah. I'm speaking and about it now, I just realised that it's wasn't your average experience. No, it was unusual. But there's all things in life that teaches us some some beautiful things. Dan. Dan's 14, he's being diagnosed with PSC, I'm going to call it because I can't say it, uh, and yet he's capable of holding that that with himself for the better part of almost a decade Yeah. while looking after Dad. So Dad, if he's 14, I'm 19... Cold lasts another few years. He, he deteriorates pretty. I remember b- being a bit shocked when you guys did eventually get to Europe um, in in the beginning of 
2007. 2007 we, we went to Scotland and England and France and Italy. Um, that was a, that was an amazing five weeks. I was on my gap year. I spent a year in, in the UK and Europe working and travelling. What was what was Dan's health like at that point? Uh, I think it was pretty good. Um, I mean, he had ulcerative colitis as well, so he had a pretty ugly bowel disorder too. Um, and he had issues with gluten. And I mean, everywhere we went in Italy, yeah, it's silly gluten was nightmare. yeah. And he uh, look, he just did it. Um, he'd he'd go up to uh, the you know the restaurants and catering operation and say you know I, I'm gluten free um, and I I guess yeah when I think about that that was amazingly stoic for yeah. a fourteen year old to manage that um, and in Italy of all places I mm. don't think they're very well they're very accommodating to to being oh they would be free. now but maybe it yeah, was it's just it, but it, yeah, it's, it's a multi billion dollar industry yeah. these days so but back then it's 2007, no one's really – I only know one other person at that time who was celiac who didn't eat gluten. It was a good friend of mine at school. So, Dan, we didn't – obviously the decision was to not tell the to tell the other kids. We didn't really know that – like I knew that Dan was going to hospital and, or doctors and things, but you didn't – you chose not to tell us the, the sort of the detail? I can't really remember now. I guess we didn't um – I, I guess we didn't. I can't really remember the detail. That's uh, okay. Yeah. I'm just wondering because I mean, you've got a lot going on, um, dealing with dealing with. Yeah, I mean, it, that in hindsight, when I think about Dan, he did sort of put himself aside, um, yeah, for the the betterment of us and dad and I remember his on Colin's first anniversary you know Dan lay in my arms and he said that I would have looked after dad you know forever if it meant he would still be here and I guess that was sort of a pretty good reflection or indication of the love that you guys all felt for him and for each other um oh look I think we can give and a fair bit of credit for his ability to to be so selfless. Look, I I found it very challenging to to help Dad. Um, I had my own mixed relationship with 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 Cole. I was able to carry him upstairs and push the wheelchair and do the physical side of things, but the the selflessness that Dan showed in being able to to care for him in in such a such a tender way, I think speaks volumes to to who he was as a person and to to the energy that he channeled and it just it it hearing it at near you know it's bringing up a lot of emotion I, I don't know what it's quite bringing up I think it's it's admiration in in one aspect but hearing you say it like that it's he held so much and that's Pretty, pretty amazing for, for a young man to be able to hold. Sitting here now, just if we come back into the moment for a second, how, how are you feeling about the, where this conversation's going? Can we, can we keep pressing on with the story about Dan? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, um, 
it's more that I'm trying to make sense of, I guess, who and how Danny was. And well, I think that the making the sense is that he is the culmination of the values and the and the gifts that were given from you and Dad, and then his own sense of what of what that meant to be to be a part of a family and to be to be a warrior you know he he we were talking about it with the boys and I always talk about it but he had he he had that warrior spirit and that's sort of where I came came up with the idea of the the gentle warrior um many people at the time were talking after he's after he did pass in back in 2018 about him being a warrior but it was just it was the gentleness and the, the, the judgment-free way in which he would, would hold you. Those hugs, God, anyone who knew Dan knew those hugs. He would, he would consume you um, with, with, his, with, his, with his whole being. Yeah, he did. Um, in fact, yeah, that, that's one of my big memories of him in the Let Street Kitchen. I, I guess um, he, he, the way he managed Cole um, in the last couple of years was extraordinary and you're right, there was a gentle softness um, that he helped me with um, and it was always with, uh, with grace. Um, and I guess I just took that for granted. Um, I guess because I was doing it, um, I and he followed that. I felt that was just how 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 it had to be. Um, as yeah, looking back on it, as Dan got gets older, you know, this uh, we're talking back in two thousand six, two thousand seven. He's a lanky, bushy head, sort of quirky kid. We were always the best of friends, but it wasn't really until Dan hit his twenties and he moved to moved to Sydney or early twenties, moved to Sydney with the boys in Bellevue Hill that he really became into his own and he had this. He became became a man. What was it like with that transition from you know young boy teenager mother role, and then to him transitioning into to a young adult and a, and a man. And having to navigate the complexities of the fact that he's unwell, but he's also trying to live his life, and he probably doesn't want his mum around as much with talking about his health. What what was that like? That that transition. Oh, it's an interesting question. He he was complicated, um, and I'm not sure that I always picked up on how complicated it was for him. Um, in reading some of his diaries after he died, he had a dream and I can remember it clearly that he was climbing a, a staircase and I, in the dream I was chasing him and he said, I think that's because mum wants me to know that there's some things that I need to do for my health um, and I don't really want to look at them. Um, and I guess I had a mixed reaction from that too and felt like... It wasn't really from an anxiety that I, I wanted him to look at them. Um, 
But that's how he sort of saw me is chasing him up the staircase to the top of this huge steeple. Um, it's hard to know whether, yeah, how that how well that was managed. Um, in reading his diaries afterwards, he was suffering from some pretty severe mental health issues until he got back on the road working with Tobes um, and the Blands. Um, yeah, just just for some context, the, the Blands uh, were family friends of ours in Bathurst, the, the boys, there were three boys in, and they had an organic vegetable farm, mainly broccoli, and we all, yeah, we all over the years have worked on the farm, but they were very close and I'm good friends with all three of the boys and that, Tobias especially was one of Dan's best friends. What? How 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 challenging was it watching and wanting Dan to be able to ha- be free, but also worrying about the fact that you know, look, that's that's not that's not beat around the bush. There was a lot of, I guess, recreational things that Dan did. We talked about them with Huey, um, marijuana especially. And you know, among other among other party favors, but what was, what was it like with watching him man- you know managing his, I guess it was his pain and also his probably his depression with marijuana. Um, I know you and I have our own relationship with that, with my my experience. But for this for this one with Dan, what what was it like knowing that it probably was helping him, but also maybe not at the same time. Yeah, interesting questions. I did read um, "Addicted" by. Um Matt Knopfs and Kieran Palmer. Great book. Um, and that really gave me brilliant insight. To be honest, that was just after Dad. And, yeah, I still – it was before I'd done when my Master's. When you say just after Dad, you mean just after just Dad died? Dad died and it was before I'd done my Master's in psychotherapy and counselling. So I still had this limited view of an, addic- an addiction and lo and behold – if tonight on the train coming down here I said to Dan, can you just help me with this interview with Maxie tonight or this conversation and I opened a book by Pema Chodron and if it wasn't an example of a young man called Dan who had an addiction (laughs) and she was upset with him because he'd actually started smoking again and... Um, You're kidding. That was the Trump Rinpoche (laughs) said to her, "You must love that man for who he is, not for his behavior." Yes, and unconditionality. Yeah, and I can't believe that that's something that I opened in that book tonight on the train when I said to Dan, "Help me with this." Um, But I think I I spoke to him once about it, and I was in the car with him. He said. You mentioned that again, Mum, and I will not speak to you. <laughs> and again. you know that he wouldn't speak to yeah, you. Yeah, and so, rightly or wrongly, I left it. Um, and yeah, um, many hours of wondering about Danny and what could have been done, but also 
there's lots of stories and experiences that, that have been woven into those hours to come up with a way of managing what happened. Um, and, yeah, so. Yeah, I, I can only imagine what it is like and even when I imagine it, it pales in comparison to to what it's like for a mother to, to lose a son, especially only years after losing a husband. Well, as we say in the business, he ain't lost. He's still right here. Well, look, I'm going to give you that, which we may may not have a chance time to talk about everything in this conversation, but we'll, we'll see. Um, and I'm not saying that there haven't been intensely, unbelievably difficult moments of utter despair, but I have managed a way of reconciling how and where we go when we when we leave this vessel and Dan has been extremely important in working through that since he since he actually left his body um I I owe a lot of my quest for heart opening and understanding why we're here to him and his passing and he and he he knows that he knows he's instrumental in helping me with that yeah I think Dan's life is is a beautiful tragedy. He he lived fully and he lived with with exuberance, and it was all too short. But when you really understand the impermanence of of all things, everyone's life will, will end at some point. And I think it's only a tragedy if we waste it. And I think that's a big part of why we're here today in these conversations is to is to change our attitude towards many things and especially death i think we're 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 terrified of it as a as a culture we don't talk about it which may have impacted dan's experience you know you know you, you've woven into to his decisions are such a complex array of experiences from his own you know his own mortality to watching his dad waste away and i think as we've said before he had a much more intimate experience with that and so the idea of being a burden is heavily etched into him and then the fact that we as a culture don't talk about death and how we're feeling properly maybe that played into it I I don't know I, I know in my own experience I've had to really get to grips with being honest with myself I've found a way of coping with the intense grief and emotions by creating a story around that I'm doing okay but when in reality I'm in a lot of pain and so speaking the truth to oneself first and then to those around around me has been a really important part of my process do you, I give Dan his his decision I you know I don't I don't want to be to look back on his decision to end his life early with judgment. Are you able to? What 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 is your what is your feeling with that? I know that's a big question, but oh look, I I, I can't answer all of my feelings. Uh, sorry, I can't explain all of my feelings right now. But when I was doing uh, the run that I I did. It, 
uh, in honour of Danny because he loved it, the Glowworm Tunnel Run, I, I got a very strong message from where he said, Mum, I really want you to say I made my own way. Um, and he said, when you're explaining to people what happened, you just say I made my own way. Um, I've, I've had a number of very interesting comments from him over the years and, I mean, I can talk about some profound happenings just prior to finding out when he died and also straight after he we found out and I'm not sure if it's appropriate to share them on on this but I've there were at, at different times I felt very close to the fact that he was still able to communicate to me about what was happening um it's not really necessary at this point to sort of try and make any sense of that but it gave me extraordinary compass if you like to manage and navigate my way through the utter agony of what happened and to hold a sense of joy and a sense of despair at the same time and so I'm not really sure where you want me to go from here, but um, I, I I can't really comment on the fact that he completed suicide. Um, I can only respect him by saying that he made his own way and... Um, I found that that helpful, very helpful. Um, yeah, I think that's a really, a really beautiful way of, of of explaining Dan's decision, Dan's decision that he made his own way, um, and we have to allow each of us in our lives, our own way. Loving someone unconditionally is a really is a really challenging thing when 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 you want nothing but the best for them. Yeah. But yet you have to allow them their own journey. And as a mother I imagine that that is a really hard thing to reconcile with to, to lose a son, to lose a child. Yeah, of course. It's indescribable. But I've sought a lot of assistance from different people across the world and I've done many things to assuage that pain. Yeah, let's let's rather than going back to the actual experience of what it was like when when we when we all found out what had happened, I think mm. we've relived that enough. Yeah. What were some of the things that you did over the last five years to come to a peace with what had happened? To come to a peace with Dan? What, let's let's talk about some of the. We we know I've had I've got my own techniques and tools, and I've talked about those before. But what are the what are some of the things you've done, Jules, to to as you said before, assuage the pain? Uh, I've 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 made it my business to feel love and to see Danny as 
as as a goldenness in my life and I've made it my business to talk to him from a space of believing that he he is here um and that I can talk to him and that I, he is guiding me um I joined an organisation called Helping Parents Heal and I've discovered different mediums over the years who've given some fascinating accounts of evidence that we know it's Dan who's making some sort of communication to us. Can you just explain what you mean by medium? Somebody who is able to make a connection with um, a person who's past who's died and you found that really helpful i found that incredibly comforting um and i've also had a like many interesting communications where it's it's him talking to me i think the most important thing is that i've held i've held love in my heart for him and <sighs> made plenty of messes over the last five and a half years but I've sort of tried to just keep my heart open to the possibility of feeling more deeply for him and not letting him down by becoming bitter about what happened. I mean the last thing that he would have wanted was for us to become twisted and distorted in our perception of how we see the world and I just use his goldenness to keep me moving and that isn't always reflected in my behavior I have to say but (laughs) um, I'm the human (laughs) that's right Um, and I can't really go two hours without telling him I love him or um, I take his picture and my beautiful sister's picture. It's okay, take your time. I'll just jump in for a second. So we sadly as a family lost mum's younger sister Georgie earlier this year to a very challenging and heartfelt battle with cancer. And yeah, I set up their pictures wherever I go and have my pink crystal with them and it's like I just I take so much comfort from how they are now and how much love they can share for us. Um and I I don't really expect anyone else to sort of understand that and you know, this is five and a half years on. Uh, there were many, many times in the early days, in the first three weeks or so, where it was just so difficult. Um, but I also uh, wanted to make sure that I was completely present to Maxie and April and Katie and Ash at the time um, and cousins and sisters and brothers and... Um, yeah, I think that's a really a beautiful acknowledgement to make that 
I guess part of why I'm having these conversations is to use your term before rightly or wrongly. I, I wasn't as able to be there for a lot of the others. I did my best, but the, the the point I was in my own life and what I was go- what I was going through personally, that the fracture that was Dan's death meant that I became very self focused, self absorbed in my own in my own grief, my own pain. How how were you able to to hold space for yourself, but also be there for such a we have such a mum's one of seven, so I'm the eldest of some countless grandchildren now. I can't even <laughs> I can't remember what, what how did you how did you hold so much space for people and hold your own grief? Um, not sure that I held space for people, but I I attempted to be in communication with people because people were loving to me, I guess. And I just sort of had this huge need to continue to feel Danny um, as the beautiful being that he was. And I guess what was so important to me was the fact that he had given so much to Dad, to Colin. You know, as as a young man trying to manage his own huge illness and yet was so present to us that Mm. I just couldn't let that go. I mean, I I couldn't let the so-called stigma of making your own way, taking your life, having a hand in your death, cloud the extraordinary being that he was. I just – and that's not to say that we're not all extraordinary as humans and it's not to put Danny on a pedestal. It's more to actually acknowledge how much I experienced his his loving kindness in his life. Um, and so it, it just – it seemed absolutely essential that love was just sent to him and we would, in as a consequence, experience more love as well. Um, and I guess – when there is that type of death in a family, um, you know, other people are vulnerable as well. Yeah. Um, and I, gu- I guess I felt that it was very, very important to try and hold a sense of light, literally. Mm. Um, uh, and there were times, of course, when I, I wasn't able to do that and I... I wept with my family, but I, there was something about Dan. I, I don't know what it is. And one of my friends coined Dan Light. Um, yeah. And so we sort of ran with that and it just seemed so inspiring, to, you know, to take pictures of beautiful sunrises and sunsets and give them a name like Dan Light. Um, it just sort of – it gave a sort of meaning to the pain Um so there was a capacity to hold the pain and the joy at the same time and the love at the same time. I think that's a really beautiful way of framing the whole experience, the, the pain and the, and the joy and the love in one. 
I'm not a drinker. Um, <laughs> and Probably a good thing. I wanted to smoke a lot of cigarettes. <laughs> and I remember for a few days I did and it was so helpful. But um, I just felt also that it was important to just keep us all together and keep us going. Yeah. And what, what does it look like now for you? It's five years on. You know, the, the memory for me is still... As I was saying to to Huey in the in the previous episode, it, I still find it shocking at times. Um, I've come to my own peace with it. But what what is it like? You mentioned before it's every couple of hours you have to say you love him. So I imagine that still it's still very much present in your in your day to day. Oh, it absolutely is. Um, and you know, I guess I'm a little concerned about how Katie and April are. Um, uh, I try to – I haven't really been able to get a lot of feedback from them about how it is. I think they're both very sad still. I mean, they're, they're doing yeah, their lives and there's lots of things happening for them. But um, I, you know, I say to Katie, just ask Dan for, for help. <laughs> I think she thinks I'm slightly balmy. She does try, but Probably. At, at times she's – I think she hurts still. Yeah. But, you're, but in your own experience, what they're, they're, they'll have their experience and, and they'll probably come out here at some point, my, my lovely sisters. But in your own experience, what, what is it like the day-to-day for Julie, for the, for the mother of, of Dan? What's it like for you? Well, as I said, he comes, he and Georgie are on a dressing table or on the floor with me every night. Um, I light a candle... Um, I talk to them, I meditate in the temple every day and Dan sits on my right shoulder and Georgie's sometimes sitting next to me. I can't really go many hours without making some sort of communication to him. Yeah. Um, but you very much bring it into the front and centre of your day. You don't, you, not, you don't try to push it away. You no, definitely not. It's not. You're not afraid of... of I that. ask him for help all the time. Yeah. Um, but you don't, you don't, you don't hide away from the, from no. the gravity of it all. Well, I probably wouldn't use the word gravity. Um, sometimes I want to scream. Yeah. Did Did you get angry? Did you go through that anger? No. I know. I know. I did for me. No, I've actually, like, I call him a bum head sometimes but we can say dickhead here uh yeah and but i have never needed to get angry with him ever i thoroughly respected his process yeah i think that's important i also believe that he has helped me in a past life cross the veil um and well that's something that we both we may disagree on many things in life, but one thing we do, we can, we, we, you and I can agree on, is this, uh, this sort of idea of a, of a collective consciousness. So that, in fact, that we are all each other, and we are all each other's lives in a infinite sort of in a continuous way. In a continuous way. Sorry, yeah, that's yeah. a better way of saying. It. In a, we are each other in a continuous cycle of, of life and death, and I think. 
I mean, when he was born, out of all of you, he was the one that I knew had literally been with me before. That's interesting. Um, and it was very profound. I wasn't mm. looking for it. Um, it was just, it came to me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when we did find out, it was obviously inexorable agony. I can't really describe. And my husband, Len, at the time was very loving. Um I remember him saying to me, sort of at the back of me, he was saying, Mum, you've got to help me. I helped you. And um, we, we, we said, it's okay, Dan, you can, it's okay. And we sat on the couch. And then as we did that, this huge golden butterfly was in the room. It's an energy and it, and it sort of it just calmed me right down and I, I could feel this bigger sense of what was going on when he said, it's okay, Mama, I've done this for you before. You can do it for me. Um, look, I don't know what you call that, but it seemed to just connect me to something much broader and it just, yeah, it, it just held, held, Tracy and April were there and, um, and, and Lane actually and, yeah, and there's lots of other experiences that I've had with my friends and other people, but, I mean, there's some music I can't listen to. <laughs> well, it took me a long time to get back to Bondi for a swim. Oh, I don't, oh, look, I, I haven't even covered what it's been like for you, you guys, the siblings. Um, no, well, that's and that's not something that I, t- I take lightly in any way, shape, or form. And I have never assumed that my grief is more worthy than yours and April's and Katie's. It's just a different process and I've always tried to be mindful, more than mindful of the desperate pain that you have felt over the years. That's um, a very beautiful quality to hold and I guess that comes, it says a lot about you as a mother and as a, as a, as a, a human. Humans. It's very beautiful. Um, look, <laughs> there's, there's so many things we could talk about and we can continue going but I really just want to thank you for for your honesty and for your for the depth of where you went with this conversation and, and what you've shared and it's been a really beautiful experience to to hear your to hear your sort of life story and to what you went through with dad and what it was like going through the, the loss of our, our dear brother Dan your your son and I, I just I'm nothing but grateful for for the openness you had to this to this experience, and I'm yeah I'm really grateful for you coming down and having this conversation. It's been pretty amazing and and beautiful. So thanks, mum. Thanks, Jules, for for being so open and talking to me for the last hour and a half. Maxie, I really don't have the words to say how incredibly grateful I am. I just have the courage to explore world the way you are i'm incredibly privileged well thanks mum and yeah i really appreciate the conversation love you lots love you too bye